0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, we're joined by a truly multifaceted guest, Christian Matsberg. Christian is an entrepreneur, a thinker, professor, and author with a unique perspective, I think, on the intersection of business and the humanities. He's a co-founder of a a consulting company with a, a new approach to observations and decisions based upon the humanities. He's uh, an investor in a healthcare startup called Lateral Data. He's consulted to many boardrooms, is an author of multiple best-selling books, some of which we'll be referring to today, Sense Making, 2017, The Moment of Clarity 2014. And he's uh, taught for many years at the, uh, the New School in, in New York City on the applications of uh, modern continental philosophy to observation and business. And today we're here to discuss his upcoming book, which will be launched imminently called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World, which will be released this month, July 2023 by Riverhead Books. So thank you uh, for joining me, Christian, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you, Martin. That was a very nice introduction.
0: I liked it. (laughs) Thank you. It seems to me that your book is in one sense extremely businesslike because There's nothing more central to business than observing a complex, changing social reality and understanding what we're seeing and then putting what we're seeing into some sort of useful application. And that's, in a sense, in my interpretation, the theme of your current book, but also your two previous books. So if I may, I'd like to dig into that aspect. So my first question to you is, how do we observe properly in the sense of your three books? Right. So... I've made a living
1: out of being an observer. And I think it's because I'm a kind of a quiet guy. So it comes natural to me. But it always, when I was a kid and even like in my early 20s in school, I always thought that observing seems to be a reasonable thing to spend your time on if you want to serve someone. And that could be if you're in a hospital serving patients, it's good to understand what patients are like or what it's like to be a nurse. And if you sell automobiles, it seems like try to understand what's their life like, truly what their life is like. And you can do that through graphs. You can do it through all kinds of new technologies. But you can also do it in context, observing people, how they live, and try to understand what their life is like. And that's observation to me.
0: You have a very particular take on how to observe well. And, and you mentioned a couple of words that seem to be key. You, you talk about the importance of background, of culture, of seeing without assumptions, of what you call thick data of what you call the savannah, and of what you call the gestalt. I mean, can you tell us about some of these aspects about your theory of observing?
1: Well, it's not really my theory. I've just taken some very complicated German and French philosophy that I studied in grad school and try to make it practical. And the main innovation or the main insight in someone like Martin Heidegger, that I admire quite a lot, is that we make decisions on a background. So Human activity is guided by practices that we know and that we can't really point our finger to, so it's like water to the fish, but that can be observed. So you can look at it and listen to it and try to figure out based on what are people doing what they're doing. And very rarely that is an individual doing individual things. It's almost always an individual doing collective things without really knowing it. So it's very difficult for someone to talk about. It's very difficult to interview anyone about it. It's very difficult in a survey in particular to ask what that is like, but you can observe it. And you can do that in an organized, empirical, systematic way. So that's the background. And it's the biggest innovation in 20th century philosophy, in my opinion.
0: And presumably you're writing your book and writing multiple books about this because you think that this is not the common practice So, so how do we fail to observe the whole picture or the background? What what gets in the way of seeing deeply and properly in this sense?
1: To me, abstraction is always the enemy. It's always that you get too far away from how life is lived. And the place I found where that is the most extreme is in executive suites. It's in the C-suite. That's so far away from the people that they serve. So, how do you do it? Well, you try to break from abstraction. So in many cases, I've taken executives in, you know, massive global companies and said you wear a pair of jeans and a t shirt and you come out and you see the people that you make things for for a while. And I give them tools and, you know, techniques to do it, because it's not it's not natural for humans to do it in that way. We can do it, but it's difficult and you have to practice it and so on.
0: So that probably addresses one of the barriers which is getting out there rather than staying in here. But you also talk about observation, not opinion. Tell us about that.
1: The hardest thing is to see what's really there. And I saw that most in my students, I'd have to say. But the idea that you already know, you already know exactly why people are doing what they're doing. So an economist that looks at a group of people would always say incentives is what, what drives people because they already know that that's the case. People with strong political opinions will look at any group of people and already know what's going on. And if it's a company, they quite often think that what they already did and the way they already thought about something is the way things happen and matters to people. So if you observe with opinion first, or with, I call it ideology as well in the book, but if you do that with a set of ideas that snaps the world into place for you, then you learn nothing. So what I try to teach my students and and also the clients I've served over the years is to try to arrest that tendency of judgment for a little while and just look and listen and record what you see. And it's almost impossible for people. And in the book, I call it the, the great excavation. You have to take the layers of often toxic, junk assumptions about the world that are often way too simple. And you have to then try to observe without that. It's so hard for people, but you can do it. We can do it.
0: So in your books, you give several examples of where you've helped executives with this. You you talked about uh, doing this in automotives, in toys, in sportswear, and other areas. Can you maybe sort of give us a simple example of where such an approach leads to seeing new and useful things?
1: Right. So let's take automotive. So if you are a let's say a big automaker in Detroit, you have a big choice to make about electrification and whether you want to electrify the suite of cars you sell or automotive products you sell to the world. And if you do that, which was seven, 10 years ago, wasn't obvious that you wanted to do, you need to understand why people would, you know, how they would relate to something like an electric vehicle. And it's easy to do that on the coasts in America, where people have money and where people have a relationship to the climate that they think they can be part of solving by buying an electric vehicle. But the climate is a very abstract thing. So if you want to observe whether you can do that with a truck, if you can do that with a power truck or a pickup truck, you have to understand the phenomenon of nature and how people relate to nature. And I have a very abstract relationship to nature. I see it as graphs and temperature and emissions and so on. But if you are a customer of, you know, of a company that makes trucks, you have a very often a very different relationship to nature that has more to do with the outdoors and which is a concrete, direct relationship to nature that has no abstraction at all.
0: So in that particular case, what was the sort of insight that you could gain through this sort of gestalt, this sort of Total observational, observing without assumptions way of looking at things that it would have been hard to get at with a more traditional market research technique.
1: Right. So if you ask people, would you like an electric vehicle in the Midwest of America or in the outbacks of Australia, they would say, no, thank you, because it's an elite thing. And we think there's so much talk about the environment that we don't understand. But if you then observe the life of a truck and the role it plays in a community, you'll see. It's everything. It is the way you move the fridge for your neighbor. it is showing that you're a good person and that you're often you're related to the church you're in. but also it is the tool you use to fix nature. So that would be the waterways, it would be the streams, it'll be forests and so on. So the truck is actually a direct relationship to nature, which means that we can absolutely make electric vehicles to a crowd that might not, if you ask them, do it. And it has so many upsides, practical upsides, that you can see when you spend time with people in their life and you'd see that actually the bet on electric vehicles will be a helpful one and one that if you don't do it, the lights go out in Detroit. So by observing the life of a truck or many of them and how they're used and what they mean to people, you can see how you might want to make them, whether you should make them at all, And if so, how do you sell them to people?
0: So I've sometimes heard marketers talking about design thinking or anthropological research. In your mind, is this the same approach or a pale limitation of the approach that you're proposing or something quite different?
1: So those are two different things. So design thinking is anthropology-inspired, and it is ethnography-inspired. And ethnography is the tool that anthropologists use, which is fieldwork. And I'm very inspired. of that as well I'm not an anthropologist but I like it but design thinking is a very lightweight version of it it's sort of drive-by ethnography it's done quickly and it's not done by people that are looking without assumptions it's quite often that designers have a pretty clear idea what they want to make before they even go looking so design thinking is probably good for some things but in general I haven't seen much that I really liked and thought was insightful and inspiring. Now, anthropologists call me a philosopher that does anthropology. And I don't know about that, but certainly I'm in, I like anthropology, and I like the technique. What has happened to anthropology lately, though, is it's become highly political, and is ideological from the beginning, all the way down. And that is not helpful, because that's ideology, that's not observation.
0: So we've spoken a lot about observation you know, if we initially observe without assumptions, obviously in many cases we aim to do more than observe. We, we aim to understand and, and deploy. Do you have any observations about correctly understanding based upon correct observation? I, I noticed that you use some very evocative words. You talk about hyper reflection, inter subjectivity, the role of imagination in understanding things. Tell us about how to understand our observations once we've made them patiently. So that
1: is a good way of saying it once we've made them patiently. So There are two phases. One is data capture, you could call it. Maybe BCG would call it empirical extraction. So just observing, recording, listening, not judging. After that, you try to see what are the patterns in this based on what's the background, based on what do they make the decisions that they make, often without knowing. So the analytical part is using theory I use phenomenological theory, where you look at the phenomenon of nature or the phenomenon of growing up or the phenomenon of yoga and taking care of your body and see based on which assumptions are they doing this. Hyperreflection is a name I try to use for that kind of observation. And it's not my word, it's a French philosopher called Maurice Merleau-Ponty. but it's a way of seeing a kind of attention that we have a hard time doing, but that we can learn. And that's not truly natural to humans. And often we're educated out of it.
0: The title of your book or the subtitle mentions the word distraction, presumably the things that get in the way of correct observing and understanding. What are some of those distractions in, in modern life?
1: I mean, the easy thing to say, it's mobile phones and you have to put it away. But I'm not sure about that. I, I think it's a part of modern life and I enjoy some of the things you can do with it. Even social media, I think, have massive benefits. And I'm a huge technology fan. Just fundamentally, I like technology. But it seems to me, and I could see that on my students in particular, that they feel emotionally distant from the world. And I know from the executives I've worked with that they feel kind of abstracted relationship to the world. And that is highly distractive it distracts you and it makes you in a foul mood. And I think a lot of the malaise you can see now comes from a distant relationship to the world and we can regain that. And I think it's just like a kind of antidote to the distracted mind that can't, I mean, people always talk to me, I can't focus. And I don't think focus is the right word. I think hyperreflection is the right word for what we need. So when I talk about distraction, I talk about a malaise of a distracted emotion.
0: Okay. So I guess one of the characteristics of the modern corporate environment is an increasing focus on technology and data. And we might be tempted to believe that we can see more because we have more data. It's, it's the truth of the observation of the reality is all in the data. I'm presuming that you might not entirely agree with that statement. Is data a sort of a distraction in some contexts? I think it's amazing.
1: The things we can do with data in many ways, I mean traditional modeling, when it's done well, to some of the new technologies that are using enormous amounts of data. I think that is exciting and I think it's like a brother to observation in a sense. The techniques we've used for a long time has been asking people what they think or do or what they want. The new data sets is basically portraying activity as it is. So in a sense it's a brother or a cousin to observation now if that's all you do if you think there's a some sort of truth machine that you just enter a question and it'll give you an answer you are distracted and it's an easy easy answer and i haven't seen much good evidence that that has the same precision and the same understanding of gestalt or the whole of a phenomenon so while i'm excited i'm also worried that people think that they can sort of they have an out that they don't have to do the work of going to the source of how life is lived, but that they can have some sort of computational model of it.
0: You don't say this directly, but connecting some of the dots in your book, I mean, let me speculate that the things that may not be in a typical data set would be data on the background variables, data on the emotional and, and the social context, perhaps data on what is not there because if our intention is to create something new, and in a sense, observing the silences may be as important as observing the, the presences. And of course, data and algorithms don't necessarily have us out in the field observing with our sense organs, they, they may sort of have a distancing effect. Are those some of the sort of cautions that you might sound against the backdrop of your more general enthusiasm for data?
1: Yes. So silence is quite important that you listen. I mean, it's sort of a joke that you listen to the silence but there are things that happen in a market or there are things that happen in relationship to a product or there are things that happen just in life among friends but what's not happening why are those things not happening why aren't we talking about this and of course examples that I've seen of that it's almost always that it's almost always what is it that nobody's talking about and why is that the case And the data set, of course, doesn't represent that. You need a human interpreter of some kind. So the idea of a truth machine is an old idea. I mean, we had oracles in ancient Greece, and I think these new technologies is seen as a kind of truth machine. And that's not good, because they have no relationship to truth. They are what Frankfurt, Harry Frankfurt would call bullshit, and they're bullshit all the way down. They have no relationship to truth. They can pass along data conclusions or extractions of data, but they have no relationship to truth. And if you want to be successful in a market, or, you know, in business in general, or in management, you need you need some relationship to truth.
0: Let's turn our observing eye onto observation itself. So we have what you're proposing in terms of observing patiently, observing the whole picture, observing the emotional and cultural context, and so on. And then we have whatever marketing, insights, analytics, foresight departments are doing, and obviously there are many variations, but on the whole, if you, if you observe those two ways of observing and you, you contrast what is not happening with the more traditional market research-oriented traditional business, what, what would be the essential differences?
1: Well, a lot of marketing research is still asking questions to people that have no idea what to answer. And that is particularly case for the future they don't know what they want. And they could think about it if you force them to, but it's almost always uninspiring. So if you want to understand what they really need, you have to observe them. And that can be done through some data analytics, but it's much more inspiring to find pockets of behavior around the world that could be what is normal in five years. So for many, many years, I've worked with a big Korean electronics company to figure out what's the future of our relationship to media and what kind of consequence does that have to how we watch TV, who produces TV, who produces, you know, what we today call content, and how do we relate to it? And those behaviors are already, were already there in 2000, in year 2000, but they were in pockets. And once you start seeing that kind of behavior many places in the world, you can start making bets on what to make and how to think about the future. So that is often missing. That's often missing because it's expensive and heavy and longitudinal. And some companies like the big Electronics, very, very capable electronics company in Korea, invest in it and inspire themselves and imagine based on that. So it's not just post-it notes in a room with a lot of imagination. It is insight driven, but imagining what might be helpful or what might be fun or what might be something we can live from in the future. So I'm most interested in finding these edge cases of behavior and putting them together to make bets in an empirical way, not in just jamming.
0: Right. Yes. I mean, I I have, I guess, different words for the same thing in my research on uh, the role of creativity and strategy, I talk about stress environments, which is where you go to an environment that's not necessarily representative, but where there is some edge case to be observed or interacted with and learn from. And I talk about the importance of anomalies in observing proto-trends, things that may become trends or could be shaped to become trends. Would that be a reasonable correspondence to make?
1: Absolutely. Observation is the technique with which you can inform that process. Imagination is then interpreting and thinking about what that might mean. But it gives it a, an empirical grounding that I think can be, or I know, can be very helpful.
0: So with the electronics company, with the car company, you've, I guess, told us about an episode of observation and interpretation. Presumably, some of your clients and corporate relationships want to affect a more systemic change in the way that they see things. And that would seem to be a tough thing to do because it consists not only of a, a set of new practices, but a, but a set of new beliefs about how the world works, how to observe things. And do you have any observations on how to effect a, an institutional change in the way that clients see things, not just in one particular case with your help, but on an ongoing basis?
1: There are two ways I've seen successful change. One is that's maybe 99% of the work I've done is with the top management. Like, if you don't have a process to see the world differently with the top management, very little will happen. There's too much inertia, there's too much fighting, there's too much silo effect inside of a company. Or it is startups, either inside or outside, that force change by being successful, basically showing that they are right. I'm not so good at the startup thing. I'm much better at the heavy top management work. When the top management agree on a perspective on the future, they really change things. I mean, these are sophisticated people with massive resources. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. And I think people talk about big companies as if they can't change and they'll be toast in 20 years anyway. I don't think that's true. I've seen massive companies with hundreds of billions in, in revenue that have changed in remarkable ways in quite a short amount of time. But you can't do that if you don't have top management. Then, you know, it's something else that I
0: don't understand. So your three books are, are very rich, and uh, unfortunately our time is very limited today. But maybe let me wrap up with a few more sort of personal questions. So clearly, you've at some point in your life, been deeply immersed in continental philosophy and phenomenology and existentialism, and in particular, you talk a lot about Meloponti and uh, Heidegger as philosophers that you have been greatly influenced by. If you could ask them a single question, you could uh, somehow be, be present with them. What would that one question be? Hmm.
1: I mean, Heidegger was a Nazi, so I would have, que- I would have questions about that. <laughs> but I'm, maybe I would ask Martin Heidegger his relationship to mindfulness. I think I would be interested in the role of an inner thinking process and equanimity in a way, because he seems to be so productive and so precise in his work that he's got to have some of that. And he, his last book is called Besinnung, which means mindfulness, but I can't really tease out what he means about it. So I would have maybe a question about that. It's often a question I get when people say, this observation thing, it seems like mindfulness, and I, I can't really make that connection. I like the outer world, not the inner world. I like being in the midst of things, not in my head, but they're connected in some way that I can't really figure out.
0: And lastly, you told us how you apply some of these ideas in your commercial practice. How would you say you apply them in your, in your personal life, if, if indeed you do?
1: Yes. So I do this all the time. It's, my, it's sort of my way of living. And I think a lot of conflicts in groups of people that could be people that work together, it could also be families, could be helped by observing each other without judgment. So I I try to do that, and I'm maybe not very good at it, but I try to figure out based on what is that person doing what they're doing, rather than judging them immediately. And I think a lot of nasty conflicts can be solved. And I've heard from my students, they still write me 10 years later after they've finished my course, and say, it makes me feel healthy. It makes me feel connected that I sometimes try to observe what's going on, even in situations where I'm furious or disappointed or things like that. So I think there's a health benefit to sometimes having this approach to each other. I just have a commercial mind, so I always take it to what can we make, what can we do with this? But I think there is a, a side of it that's healthy and good for you.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, discussing your new book with me today, Christian, and again, congratulations on its launch. Thank you
1: so much. These were good questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Today, we've been discussing Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World by Christian Madsberg, which will be released in July 2023 by Riverhead Books. In some ways, it's a very philosophical, a very intellectual, a very broad book, but in other ways, massively practical in that business does indeed hinge upon observing changing situations, unknown situations, complicated situations, and interpreting them and putting them to use. So I I think there are some business universals and a lot of wisdom in the book, and I'd strongly recommend it. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed to this Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, and as always, we welcome your feedback.